Well, welcome again to church. It's great seeing so many here this morning on a Sunday, uh, summer Sunday. I trust you've had a good week walking with the Lord, even if it's been a tough week. I'm praying that today uh, would be a help to you, no matter what you've journeyed through over the last few days. We're going to pray in just a moment. I just sense uh, God's leadership to pray. Uh, but before we do, let me invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, if you have your Bible or your Bible app. And while you're turning, I want to tell you a couple of things. One, about our current series. We've just, we're starting this morning called This Is Us. How many of you have seen the TV show, This Is Us? I won't ask how many of you regularly watch it, and I won't ask how many of you have cried. But I think it's the only show in, in history ever to be sponsored completely by Kleenex. Uh, it is it is really a, uh, a tearjerker from what I've heard. I've never seen any of the episodes. I probably should. So this series is not that, but in many ways it's like that. This For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this beautiful mess uh, we call the family of God, that we call the church. And we're going to dive deeply into Ephesians 4 and see what has God called us to as a family, uh, why are we a family, and how can we live more like a family in the days and months ahead. If you have your card on your chair, if you would pull that out, maybe you saw it when you were sitting down, an invite card to the levy service. Uh, September 23rd, we will not be here, but we're going to be down at the levy at 10 a.m. It's really a neat time for two reasons. One, it allows the entire church to be together, children, adults, everybody all in the same place at the same time. So every year going forward, you'll see different services like this at least once a year when we can gather. But it's also encouraging time for us to invite neighbors, to invite friends. This year, I'm going to completely uh, dedicate the service to giving the gospel message and calling people to put their faith in Christ. I remember when I was a kid, we would have services where you knew you could bring your neighbor and they would hear the message of salvation and could respond in any number of ways. So be inviting, uh, be praying most of all that God will bless our church so that we can reach our city. Let me invite you to stand with me as I begin to read from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The words will also be on the screen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond, bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. The one Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for our church family. And I've never been more excited for what you are doing in hearts. And I pray today that you would root us, you would ground us, our sense of family in this beautiful gospel message. And I pray that we would do uh, because we learn more about who you've made us to be. Lord, we do pray what's on that card. Oh, God, dear God, bless our church so we can reach our city. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It was a few years ago when our girls were much younger, much smaller than they are now. It was a Saturday morning. We were out at the YMCA, uh, and they were doing their soccer games. How many of your children or grandchildren play soccer? I'm just curious. Will you raise your hand? A lot of you. 
Uh, maybe when they were little, if you remember, they really aren't playing soccer. It's more like a swarm of bees around a, a ball. They just kind of float from one side to the other. And I remember this one Saturday morning as Sarah and I sat in our soccer chairs. One of our daughters that'll go unnamed was doing everything she could to score a goal, right? She was kicking as hard as she can kick, and maybe she might have even been shoving harder than she should shove. And occasionally, you know, the ball would pop out of that swarm, and she would go running for the ball. And finally, she was so excited to score her very first goal. Now, she looks over at mom and dad, and she's expecting us to go crazy. And of course, after a second, we, we respond appropriately, and we clap, and we give her a thumbs up. But it was hard to let her know that she had scored in the wrong goal, right? So you're excited when your little kids do cute things like that. We realize that maybe when they're really, really small, they don't know which goal uh, to go after. And that's cute for kids, but it's not necessarily cute for adults. And this morning, what I want to talk for the next few minutes about is the importance of going after the right goal as a church, the importance of going after the right goal as a family, uh, as the, going after the right goal as a follower of Jesus. And so this goal is so important, I'm convinced that if you'll give us the next few minutes of your time, I'm convinced that God can renew a sense of purpose in your life. I'm convinced that God can give you a purpose for why you're part of a church and the role you can play in the church. And I'm convinced that the best days of Bible Center Church can be yet ahead if we will heed the words of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So what is that message? What is that goal? If you're taking notes, it's simply this. Unity is the ultimate goal of all the ways of God. Unity is the ultimate goal of all the ways of God. This guy said it better than I could. And when we think about Ephesians chapter 4, where do we get this idea of unity being the goal? Well, look with me in verse 3. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Benjamin Franklin said there's only two things in life that are certain. Remember what they are? What are they? Death and taxes. Death, I'm going to add two more to that. Uh, the third one I would say is certain is that the Cleveland Browns will never win another Super Bowl. And, and the fourth one is that if you're breathing, you will have conflict. If you're breathing, you will have conflict. And so Paul knows that, that this church is going to experience what we all experience. And one of the big themes of the book of Ephesians is unity. From the very beginning, he reminds them of their unity with Christ and how that one day we'll experience that unity as a reality for all eternity. Look with me in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, he says the same thing from a different perspective. Chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one 
and has destroyed the barrier, dividing the dividing wall of hostility. And down in verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. God is building his church around the unity of Jesus' good news. And so he says in verse 3, make every effort, make every effort to pursue this unity. This idea of make every effort can also be translated this way. Spare no effort, strive eagerly, work at it, make it a priority. The word there was sometimes used for a trainer when he sent a Roman gladiator into the Colosseum. He would say, make every effort. In other words, give your dead level best because your life depends on it. But it's not that we're to make every effort to create unity. He says further in verse 3, we're to maintain or keep our unity. We're to preserve the unity that the Spirit has already given us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, the moment we put our faith in Christ, we are given unity with the Spirit in the body of Christ. Now it's our job just to maintain it. Pretend today when you get home from church, you get a call that somebody wants to give you a present. It's not just any present, but it's this present on the screen. They want to give you your very own yacht. All right, maybe that sounds really, really exciting to you. For you boat owners or previous boat owners, maybe it doesn't look as exciting to you, but this is actually the world's second largest yacht. Not the largest, second largest. Just leave this picture up for, for a moment. It sold for $458 million to a Saudi prince, multiple pools, just about everything you could have like in a city. It's a city on water. Now, if somebody gave you that, it would be a free gift. So essentially, they're giving you something worth $450 million. But do you think it would take very much money to maintain that yacht over the course of the years? Think of the time that it would take. Think of the investment of energy and planning and staffing. It would take a lot to maintain that. You'd be thankful for the free gift. Maybe you'd sell it and pay off all your credit card debt and everybody else in the world's credit card debt, uh, but it would still be a free gift, but it would require maintenance. Think of the this unity of the Spirit like that. God gave it to you for free. It's something worth infinitely more than a yacht, but it requires hard work and maintenance and requires upkeep because God has invited us to participate with Him in this work of Christian growth. He says we have the bond of peace, peace with God and peace with one another. Jesus prayed a prayer recorded for us in John 17, 20 and 21. 2,000 years before we took our first breath, Jesus prayed this prayer for Bible Center Church. This is what it is. My prayer is not for them alone, talking about the disciples in front of him, but I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. Unity is the ultimate goal of all the ways of God. That's what Ephesians 4 is about. He says, maintain it, work hard at it. It's not going to be easy, but through his grace, you can do it. 
Why is it possible for us to maintain this unity? We're going to look at verses 4 through 6 quickly. It tells us why it's possible. Notice with me in verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We can have unity because of the seven realities listed in verses 4 through 6. These aren't things that we need to try to attain to. He doesn't say, try to do these things. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus, these seven things are or should be a reality in your life. He's not saying doctrine divides, but love unites. He's not saying throw out truth because truth doesn't matter. Then you can have unity. He's actually saying there are seven truths that will unite us. If you know these seven things that are already true about you, if you're a follower of Jesus, it will bring unity to your family. It bring unity to your church, unity to the body of Christ globally. What are they? Number one, you are one body. You are one body. In verse four, he says, you are one body in Jesus. This refers to the, the church universal. We call it sometimes the big C church. Are there people in Charleston who love Jesus who don't go to Bible Center Church? Yes or no? You say maybe. Yes, there's a bunch of people in Charleston who love Jesus that don't go to our church. Are there people around the world who love the Lord and have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who aren't part of our mission? Absolutely. So we call that the big C, universal church. We're part of the body of Christ. David Jeremiah writes this, the body of Christ is made up of every single person who has ever accepted Christ at any time in history. Every true Christian is part of the same body. There is only one. The thousands of different Christian denominations are not thousands of bodies of Christ. We ought to live as if we are members of the same family because we are. This past Thursday, this past week, Kara uh, and Nathaniel became Kara and Nathaniel Thompson. Few of you got to go to their adoption. And Michelle told us afterwards that whenever the judge was going to strike the gavel, that she actually had Kara and Nathaniel come up and they grabbed the together and they, they struck it together. And, but instead of just striking it once, they did it over and over again. And it wasn't because they liked the noise, she said. It was because they felt like the harder they hit it over and over again, the more it became true in their hearts. Afterwards, as Kara was walking out of the courtroom, she says, I really am a Thompson. I, I really am a Thompson. This morning, I would love for you to leave church and say, I really am a Christian. I really am a Christian. We are part of the same body. We see, secondly, we're part of, or we have the same spirit. There is one spirit. Verse 4, there's not an Asian Holy Spirit and an African Holy Spirit or a United States Holy Spirit. There is one spirit. The global church, every Christian around the world now or in the last 2,000 years, is not unified because they agree on favorite Bible translations. They're not unified because they have the same view of the end times. 
We're not unified because we agree on what movies we should or should not watch or what beverages we should or should not drink or what method we should educate our children by. These things do not unify the global church. But we are unified because we have the same Holy Spirit. Next week, I'm going to talk all about the beauty of diversity. And there must be diversity in a family. But before we look at diversity, we look at the unity of the Spirit. Number three, we see we have one mission. In verse four, he says, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. What hope is he referring to? Well, it could be pointing to the hope just in the previous few verses, but most believe he's pointing all the way back to Ephesians chapters one through three. If you could look at all three chapters, I would sum up Ephesians 1 through 3 this way. God will bring peace to this rebellious world, bringing every person and every part of creation into unity with God and one another under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is building his church, and it's made up of Jews who believe in Jesus and Gentiles who believe in Jesus and people of every nation and people of every preference. And he's bringing them together under the Lordship of Christ along with all of creation itself. That's an entirely different sermon, but it's neat to think. You can go and read Romans chapter 8 this week. In Romans chapter 8, we see that really since Adam and Eve, we've been at war with creation itself. If you're a farmer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But there's coming a day when all of creation, along with the church itself, the peoples of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be under the lordship of Jesus, and we're going to go into the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, because of this divine grace of God, is moving us towards this unity in the gospel when you think about the gospel, this hope of the gospel, I'll put 10 words up on the screen. We're going to be using this 10 words more and more throughout the fall. If you could sum up the Bible in 10 words, I think it would be these. God creates, sin breaks, Jesus saves, Jesus transforms, and God restores. Now think about this, verses 4 and 5 talk about this calling, something we're called to, we're called, we're on mission for this hope. How can we, say, point people to number three? How can we remind people that Jesus saves? One way is simply giving them the gospel. You've got a neighbor, you've got a friend, you take them out to lunch, you go out for coffee, and you share, hey, this is what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Have you ever become a follower of Jesus? You share the gospel story that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. So that points to the fact that Jesus saves. Another part of our mission is to, we're called to point to the fact that Jesus transforms. Whenever you attend a class, one of the core classes, and you're learning and growing in God's word, you're pointing to the truth that you believe Jesus transforms. Whenever you study your Bible through the week, whenever you take notes, whenever you pray, you're saying, I believe number four. I believe Jesus is still transforming me. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He gave me his spirit, and he's making me like Jesus. So a church on mission is a church to points 
to the fact that Jesus transforms. A church on mission also points to the fact that God restores. Why do we go to the mission and feed hungry bellies? Why do we go downtown and and help a a donut shop get off the ground and paint walls and clean kitchens and scrape floors? Why do we do that? It's not because we believe that we're going to restore the earth. If Bible Center really gets it together, man, we are going to bring in the kingdom. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is every painted wall, every belly fed, every roof that we can help put over somebody's head, it's just a picture It's a billboard to say we at Bible Center Church believes, we believe that God restores and one day he's going to make the world right. But until then, we'll keep creating little images and little billboards by painting walls and feeding bellies to say this is just a taste of what the kingdom looks like. We have this mission In Ephesians chapter 4, he begins to call his church to get on mission together and unify around our calling. We see also what unifies us. Number four is we have one Jesus. In verse 5, he says, you have one Lord. The favorite title for Jesus among early Christians was Lord. 20 times in the book of Ephesians alone, it references Jesus as the Lord. This is what separated non-believers in Rome from believers in Rome. In Rome, you could believe in any God you wanted to. Uh, they had the pantheon. They had believed in the God, the God of Zeus, uh, the God of Nike, the God of Juno, Neptune, and more. But they would have easily put up a statue to Jesus had Christians not believed John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Christian says we're not serving a God among gods. Jesus is the one true God, which is why by the millions they gave their lives. We serve one Jesus. Number five, we have one source of truth. It says in verse five, we have one faith. He's not talking about having faith, but about a system of belief. Uh, The core truths that make up Christianity. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down two verses. Jude 3 and Ephesians 4.13. Jude 3 and Ephesians 4.13. Jude 3 says, We are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He doesn't mean you should have faith, although you should. That's earlier in Ephesians. But it seems in context he's saying there is this one body of truth. There's one faith to which we're all called and that we all believe. Here at Bible Center, over the years as we move forward, we want to make sure that we differentiate between open-handed beliefs and closed-handed beliefs. This is what I mean. Open-handed belief says, I might disagree with the person next to me, but we can still be Christians and we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what I call an open-handed belief. Do you think you disagree with anybody in this room at all? Think you do? Maybe one or two people? Sure. We have different opinions, right? We all have them. There's open-handed beliefs, and then there's close-handed beliefs. These are the things that you say, there's no way to be a Christian and not believe these things. You might not understand all of these things, but there's no way to be a Christian and deny 
these truths. So for instance, a close-handed belief might be Jesus is God, that salvation comes by grace through faith, that Jesus was fully human, that there's a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are the things we want to cling to and other core doctrines that have been believed throughout the centuries. There may be a middle ground where local churches might call, we call these preferential issues or persuasions where you might have your hand kind of half open. There's certain things we do at Bible Center that we say, you know, all churches might not do it this way, but we believe at this time, this is the way God would have us do this as a church. That's totally okay. But as we pursue unity with other brothers and sisters, let us be very, very careful not to lump everything into the closed-handed argument but to enjoy the beauty that we have, that we gather around these core truths of the faith and everything else as a matter of preference. Augustine said about 1,500 years ago, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. We also have one baptism. We see it in verse 5. He says, there's one baptism He's not referring to one mode of baptism. Various churches do baptism a host of different ways. But what's important is that all baptism, at least believer's baptism, points to faith in Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Around West Virginia, there's a lot of different ways people do baptism. Has anybody heard of the three-dunking method of baptism? Anybody ever heard of that, where you dunk him once in the name of the Father? and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anybody ever heard of that? That's actually a thing, right? I mean, I think that person would like need goggles or a snorkel or something, but just, you know, one right after the other. We could do that. I, I, I don't like that. I don't think, think it best reflects the Scriptures, but that's one way. In West, I met a guy once who wanted to tell me theologically why when we baptize, you needed to baptize people face down and not backwards. And I listened to the guy probably 20 more minutes than I should, but he wanted to tell me why I had to baptize people. There's all different opinions and persuasions. Some people like the baptistry. We're going to do an outdoor baptism. There's indoor baptism. Some of you are baptized in a creek or a river. What matters is that it's a baptism after you've put your faith in Christ, and it points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. David Jeremiah says this, There are several different baptismal practices in the church. Some sprinkle, some immerse, some baptize people of any age, some only adults, and some baptize three times. He's been talking to some people in West Virginia. Once in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No matter how it appears in the church, there really is only one baptism. We have an outdoor baptism coming on October, or excuse me, September the 9th at Chuck and Rachel Kinder's house. They've been so gracious again this year to allow us to come in. We're going to bring a crew of guys and we dam up the creek. It's really a beautiful service. We would love, if you've never been baptized, God in the Bible calls you to be baptized as a Christian. If you've put your faith in Jesus, this is like going public. The Bible really knows nothing of a Christian who believes in Jesus but who's never been baptized, at least one who continues to live their life after putting their faith in Christ. I want to be teaching a baptism class 
here next Monday, a week from tomorrow, I would love for you to join me. It's going to be in the living room. If we run out of room, we'll come in here. We'll do a baptism class and talk about what it means to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One more thing in verse 6. He says there's one heavenly Father. There's one heavenly Father. And in verse 6, he's, he says God is over all and through all and in all. God is sovereign, God is near, and God lives within us if we've put our faith in Christ. Unity is the ultimate goal of all the ways of God. This whole passage is about the unity that God is gathering. He's building his church under Christ. So what do we do about that? How do we then live? If he says, hey, earnestly work hard for unity, preserve unity, how do we do it? Well, thankfully, verse 2 tells us how. Verse 2 says this, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Four practical ways to live this out. One, have, a, have an honest view of yourself. Number one, have an honest view of yourself. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. Humility doesn't mean thinking more than yourself, but just having an honest, down-to-earth view of yourself. Maybe this morning you come into the service and you've thought maybe poorly of other people the thought of having to worship beside somebody who doesn't have as much money as you or somebody who doesn't have as much education as you or when Pastor Mike talked about jumping into a group, you were like, man, I don't want to get in a group because there's going to be people in that group who are not like me. That's, that's where God's working on us as a church in humility, realizing that none of us have it all together. Secondly, how can we live this out? Be more gracious and polite. Be more gracious and polite. The idea of gentleness does not mean weakness. As a West Virginia man or a West Virginia lady, we, we can be strong and still be gentle and still be meek. Jesus is the perfect example. Maybe you're the kind of person you brag about how tough you are and how growing up you fought your way out of this and that fought your way out of that. Maybe you've carried that into the church and in your mindset of the church. Could I invite you to stop? And just let me invite you to ask God to make you more of a polite person and more of a gracious person. Number three, give others room to grow. He says, be patient. In other words, be long-tempered. Give other people around you space to grow. Is there somebody here in the church you've already written off? Somebody in your family, somebody in your life that you say, hey, yeah, I'm all for boundaries. That's a whole other sermon. But even in boundaries, have you quit praying and believing that God could do a work? Give other people room to grow. And lastly, give others more. Love others more than you love being right. Love others more than you love being right. He says, bear with one another in love. One of the hardest lessons to learn in 18 years of marriage is this idea of loving my wife more than I love being right. Now, I was given some advice. I'm not saying, honey, I believe this, but somebody told me when I was right before I was going to get married, they said, hey, make sure that, that you, have, you understand there's two choices. 
You can be right or you can be happy, but you can't be both. You can be right, and I know my wife's going to send me an email for this one after the service. Uh, you can be right or you can be happy. You ask her, she'll tell you, I'm not always right. But there's one thing I am learning is that I need to love my wife more than I love being right. And we're trying to teach this to our kids. When our kids were little and they were fighting over a toy, we would go to them and try to tell them it's not about the toy. We would ask them, do you love your sister more than you love the toy? Now, if you do that with your children, a little warning, they're going to say, I love the toy more than I love my sister. They're going to say that. But the purpose is, what we're trying to do is teach our, our little ones downstairs and in children's ministry that loving people is more important than being right. This morning, maybe you've carried that wrong perspective into adulthood. Let this message stir your heart. And as we go into communion in a moment, ask God, say, God, make me a person that loves people more than I love my opinions and I love my preferences and I want my... Say, God, make me a body-minded, a community-minded Christian because unity, unity is the ultimate goal of all the ways of God. The very idea of community, we see it in various ways around the church. We see it in community groups. Pastor Mike has talked about our Sunday morning groups we see community lived out in our men's groups. I hope you'll jump in this fall. We actually right now have about 30% of our people at church involved in a group. We would love to blow past 50% by the time we start into September. Think if half of us were in a group at some point, some place in the church, we would begin to live it out. It's going to be messy, but it's going to be a beautiful mess. Another way that we live out community is through communion. I want to invite our servers to join me uh, here at the front of the aisle. And as they're coming, we're in a moment we're going to take communion because communion is this picture of our union with God and our union with one another. I mean, if we could do it, if we could somehow have a meal with every Christian around the globe at one time, man, wouldn't that be an amazing meal? Or better yet, if we could have a meal with every Christian who's ever walked the earth, from every nation of the earth. Would that not be an awesome meal? Well, actually, this symbolizes such a meal. In a moment, whenever the trays are passed, I'm going to invite you to take a minute and ask God to renew a sense of unity in your heart around the cross, around the resurrection, around the Lord Jesus Christ, and not around yourself. Hey, if this morning's message has somehow pricked an area of your heart, will you confess that to the Lord? Just can say, Lord, will you forgive me? I've not walked in this way. I've not walked in that way. If you're not yet a Christian, I want to invite you to pass the tray to the person next to you. We want this to be a really special uh, time for you. So wait until you know that you're a follower of Jesus. And we'd love to, for you to participate with us next time we take communion. Let me pray, and then we'll partake. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you for the glory of the cross. As we partake of the bread and the juice, help us to remember all that you sacrificed for us. And as we dive into community this fall, help us to do it because you've already made us a community. 
Help us to love one another like the Father has loved the Son for all eternity, and the Son has loved the Spirit for all of eternity, and the Spirit has loved the Father. Help us to enter into that unity. And may this just be a small picture of such a beautiful truth. In Jesus' name, amen.